0: welcome inside my chewy head. It's a place where I unlock my experiences on an acute psychiatric ward in my attempt to open your mind when it comes to mental health. Because 25% of the adult population is currently suffering from a mental health problem. Because over a million people are currently involved in mental health services. And because, if it can happen to me, what's to stop it happening to you? if you include my podcast name, Chewy Head Podcast, in the How Did You Hear About Podco section, I could get an additional $5, which roughly converts into £4. So please help me because every penny counts. Welcome back. I'm not going to sing because, you know, no one no one's come here for that, but welcome back to another episode and today we're talking about Sarah. So Sarah was one of the first people that I met at the hospital. I met her very, very soon into my first day, I think it was, or it might have been my second day because obviously there was a lot of chaos on the first day, evening-ish. But in the first morning I think I met her and she was quite young again, she was very fresh-faced, she was befriended by Zara and therefore was with her when I met her. And I guess my first impression of her was that she was she seemed pretty friendly. I don't know. I mean, I hadn't actually spoken to her at this point, but she seemed I don't know. She seemed fairly normal for, a you know, a psych ward clientele, as normal as you can expect on a psych ward. Um, but yeah, she seemed she seemed fine. And I kind of was like, OK, she's she's a young person. You know, maybe we maybe we're I don't know compatible (laughs) not in a relationship kind of way but you know what I'm saying like I don't really know what I'm saying here okay we'll just move on she was quite tall she was quite broad she she just came across as someone who was physically quite I wouldn't say intimidating but she definitely she looked like she could hold her own let's say anyway she uh was walking around with Zara and Zara was talking and then uh, Zara asked me about myself because that's generally what people do when you get into uh, see I nearly said prison (laughs) when you get into hospital is you do like you would do in prison I suppose you say oh how long have you been here what are you in for essentially and so you might not ask that directly like oh what's your mental health disorder but you know generally you would definitely ask oh how long have you been here and Uh, depending on how the person responded to that you might then consider asking well what what are you in for and so Zara was very forthcoming as you can imagine and was telling me all about all of the difficulties that she'd faced and how long she'd been in hospital for and the conversation kind of naturally turned to me and I was explaining how I'd been transferred whatever and then I kind of extended the conversation out to Sarah and said oh how long have you been here and bear in mind that a lot, you know while we've been while we were talking myself and Zara she seemed quite content she was laughing at some of the things that Zara was saying the minute that i said oh how long have you been here for she kind of stopped smiling and laughing and looked at me like she wanted to murder me and went i don't even know and her voice just changed and I don't know, it was weird. She just decided at that moment, I think, that she hated my guts for asking the question or something. And I was like, oh my goodness, I think I might have offended her. But I just didn't really know how I had offended her. Maybe I shouldn't have asked that, I don't know. But she just stopped speaking and walked off. And from that moment on, I can kind of basically assume that she pretty much had decided that I was the devil incarnate and hated me. So as I found out about Sarah very swiftly Uh, she was quite an aggressive young lady and actually before I had arrived she'd only very recently been taken off having a one-to-one person walking around with her because she had been so violent physically and intimidating to other members of the hot well other patients that she couldn't be on her own so someone would follow her around to ensure safety of the other patients And I could kind of see why that that was a necessary measure because, like, for example, I noticed, as I say, maybe this was just all in my head and you need to kind of appreciate that obviously I wasn't the best mentally at the time. And so perhaps I was seeing things as personal to me when they weren't. But she definitely had certain people that she was more friendly to, such as Zara. And then she had patients like myself who she made very clear that she wasn't necessarily quite so friendly and she do this in kind of some subtle passive aggressive ways so for example if you went into the, the room for you know where lunch or dinner was held and you put your stuff down next to a seat where you were saving for yourself to sit and then you queued up she would go and sit in that seat and so you would have to then move your stuff which, you know, isn't a big deal, you know, I'm fine, I'm resilient enough to be able to deal with that, so, you know, I just move my stuff, not, not a problem. But it was almost like she was trying to provoke some form of reaction, so she'd also do things like she would jump in front of you in the queue, she'd just push in front, she wouldn't even say anything, and you'd be like, okay, alright then, I suppose... I suppose that's okay, is it? Don't know. Or she'd push in front of you in the meds queue. Or she would come up really, really close to you into your personal space and then slam the wall right next to you, so she like she was going to hit you or something. Or she would, if you were watching TV, she would just come over and turn off the TV or change the channel, and you were like, oh right, okay. And she would just, she had violent moments, I would say, where she would smash things or like bash things. Yeah, she just, she was quite aggressive, let's say and i kind of was a bit weirded out by her i didn't think i wouldn't say i was physically intimidated by her but then i must have been to some degree because you know i never challenged her but then you know by then i'd been in hospital for a while i knew there was no point reasoning with some people and because of their mental health disorders you wouldn't really get anywhere by reasoning with them because they couldn't understand reason so perhaps that was it but i don't know i just kind of did my best to not look her in the eye not provoke anything um and part of the reason for that was because this other lady who, oh my goodness, this lady will definitely have her own episode, let's put it that way. But she was very much, she was very friendly, I would say, but a bit strange. And she said that essentially the same thing had happened to her that Sarah had taken a disliking to her, and as a result of that, she had been really quite aggressive towards her. <laughs> and she would, I've just remembered, she would also do something where you'd be eating your meal and she would literally stare at you. Like she would be eating her meal, but she wouldn't actually look at what she was eating. She would just like shovel the food into her, to herself while staring at you, which is quite. I mean, it's an act of intimidation, isn't it, really? I mean. what could you she wasn't making conversation she was just deadpan staring at you and eating so you know it was it was difficult in terms of what was wrong with her um I have to say initially I was really unclear I had no idea because she came across as someone who I don't know just was aggressive and I don't think that was a disorder I don't know based on what she said you know it, it was just very unclear i did wonder maybe did she have a form of schizophrenia because sometimes she would be like laughing to herself and obviously there wasn't really anything that, that was that funny and she did have these strange violent outbursts that kind of came from nowhere so i thought oh maybe she's got schizophrenia or something but at that point i didn't i didn't really know as time went on she became kind of less violent i would say and i don't know whether it's cuz I was there for a while, but she became friendlier towards me and some of the behaviours kind of stopped a little bit. So that was that was good for me. And then I really noticed her recovering somewhat. She would she kind of opened up to me. And actually, (laughs) when the violence and the strange behaviour stopped, she was really quite forthcoming and she basically told me that she was a student uh, studying at university and she was in her first week, Freshers' Week. And during Freshers' Week, she had gone out She and then she really struggles to remember exactly the details. So she had gone out and was wandering around the city on her own without shoes on and something had happened. She was very vague. I don't know whether she knew and just didn't want to say what happened. But essentially the police picked her up. And she had been admitted by via the police to hospital and she was really confused. She didn't really know why she was in hospital. She didn't know how long she was there for. And it was all quite confusing for her, I think. And looking back now, I think, you know, did she have some sort of dissociative disorder where she had memory loss and and kind of out of body experiences? Perhaps. I don't know. Obviously, as we all know, not a medical professional. But I do try my, my darndest, don't I? Um, She was really fascinating because, well, I thought she was really fascinating because actually when you got to know her, she was a very, very loving, kind person. She was a Christian. She didn't drink. She didn't believe in swearing. And so to have this personality come through from someone who was obviously previously really violent and aggressive and targeting certain people, It was very strange to see her suddenly blossom into this kind Christian girl. But, you know, it just goes to show, doesn't it, the severity of of mental health and how at times that can really impact on your personality and give you almost a completely separate personality. And I have to say that I found it incredibly sad and she had quite a sad backstory. So she didn't really have many visitors, which, to be honest with you, if you were kind of older on the ward, you didn't really... You know people who were in there, I'd say from thirty upwards unless you had like a partner or whatever you didn't really get many visitors. It didn't seem very occasionally you might see someone sometimes people would come in for your ward round, but I suppose if someone's been suffering from a long term mental health disorder, that puts a strain on family relations and also if if it's not their first admission and they're kind of used to their child or friend or partner being in hospital, perhaps it's less of a of a thing to go and visit them I don't know but I just remember her not having many visitors and she was on a section that meant she couldn't leave the hospital at all so it was I felt that her worldview was really limited to the the confines of our ward and I kind of just obviously I didn't ask her like oh where are your family because you know I do try and be slightly sensitive but I did kind of talk to her a bit and she mentioned that her auntie was coming and I said oh I are you close with your auntie And she basically told me that she had been herself and her brother had been fostered, been been put into foster care uh, when they were younger because their mum was abusive and neglectful and just couldn't couldn't really look after them. And so they didn't have any contact with their mum and they'd gone to live with a foster family and she had managed to secure a place at university whilst being you know in the foster family so she was you know that's an amazing story isn't it like to think of the hardship she faced to be able to turn her life around like that and pursue university and and be successful and she was close to her auntie who lived nearby i believe and so her auntie would come and visit her and she was she was clearly very close to her and very thankful and appreciative of that but at the same time she was you could tell she was just really traumatized and had obviously been through an awful lot And her younger brother, she hadn't told him that she was in hospital. So he had no idea that she had like a mental health disorder and Christmas was approaching. And she was kind of anxious because I think they were spending Christmas together. And I just really felt for her. And it really got me thinking about the link between being in foster care and having mental health disorders. Because I suppose I, I was just intrigued to see whether that was something that was more likely for you if you had suffered from a mental health disorder, that you had been in, in care. And I was quite shocked when I looked at the statistics because 45% of those in care have a diagnosable mental health disorder. That's nearly half of people who end up in care, in their care system, you know. And that again, remember, that could be someone who is under the care of, I don't know, a family member, or I don't know, but you know they've had some involvement with child services and they've got mental health disorder roughly half and actually as many as 80% had symptoms but couldn't be diagnosed with a formal disorder. So that, I find that really really shocking but sadly I don't find that surprising because it really indicates to me how intertwined trauma, mental trauma and emotional trauma that you suffer particularly in your formative years as a child impacts upon your mental health long term and one of the most shocking things about Sarah I would say was the way in which she was treated at hospital because she was administered electric shock therapy and because she was so young I just found that really really shocking that that was a treatment that was an option for her so probably once maybe twice a week she would go off to we didn't have a we didn't have an on-site facility for that so she would be sent with along with a few other people from our ward off to another hospital and they would go in a taxi and from my understanding and from what she told me, you were anaesthetised, so you were put under and then you would have this therapy where they zap your brain. And it just felt really like something from the early 20th century to me. And I was really shocked that they were giving that to her and she would come back as everyone would who'd had the therapy and she'd be really sleepy and groggy and and disorientated and confused. I don't know whether that was just from the anaesthetic or whether that was from the, the actual treatment itself but she would have problems remembering things and I remember that really shockingly to me on Christmas Eve they were taken to go and have electric therapy and I was just really dumbfounded that anyone would think to do that to someone on Christmas Eve. Um, And it really made me kind of curious as to what kind of disorders got people diagnosed and got them that as a treatment option. So I kind of researched into electrocompulsive therapy and found out that, yeah, it is used to, to treat certain mental health disorders. But the really fascinating thing, I think, is that they aren't really sure essentially how that works as a treatment. And I thought that for such kind of an unknown, quite dramatic procedure to put that onto someone so young just seemed really quite shocking to me and they they basically think it does something to the chemicals in your brain but from what i can see it essentially causes your brain to lose memories which perhaps is why it's used to treat things like depression mania and schizophrenia i think for her perhaps it was for schizophrenia or some sort of dissociative mania but for an 18 year old to have such you know electric shocks to your brain when i don't think you're physically developed until you're in your early 20s i think your your body isn't technically matured until you reach your early 20s and so actually they could in my opinion and obviously i'm not a medical professional but i think they could be taking perhaps some risk there by giving you know, this therapy to someone whose brain wasn't necessarily fully developed. And as I say, from what I could tell, it just caused a lot of memory loss. And certainly there were patients, there was one particular patient who'd been in and out of hospital her entire life, sadly, and her memory was really poor. And Ray, who I haven't spoken much about yet, but he always used to say, "Oh, she's been fried too many times, which is a really callous, but also, you know, slightly comedic way of saying that she'd had far too many episodes of electroconvulsive therapy. And essentially what he said is that uh, it became like a really popular treatment. So it seems to be that just like in every aspect of life, I suppose, there are fashions or there are trends. um, And there is definitely the same sort of thing in psychiatry. So, for example, there's a drug called promethazine, which I was prescribed, which is an anti-allergy tablet, but is really really sedative so they can use it prescribe it to people as sleeping pills or to also keep people kind of calm and kind of docile and drowsy or whatever and so it was also non-addictive and so it was like the wonder drug it's the drug of the moment at the moment in psychiatry being prescribed and i suppose what ray was saying was that back in the day that was the same for electroconvulsive therapy and essentially that it didn't really matter what you came in for that would happen to you. You would kind of everyone would be wheeled out, and they would go and have their therapy, and then they would come back. And obviously, if you've had that happen to you, for you, I mean, I, I just, I also know of a lady I used to work with who actually was electrocuted, and who talked about the impact of that physically on her and on her brain. And whilst I can appreciate that it's obviously under far more controlled circumstances when you are within, you know, hospital and there's doctors monitoring the specific voltage and all the rest of it, I just, I personally cannot imagine how that can possibly be a good thing for you long term if you continuously have this therapy and i think if that was their initial treatment of her at the age of 18 you know where where are they going to go in the future What, what what have they left in the reserve bank for this young lady and uh I found that really personally quite shocking. When I left, she was still in there. Um, I don't know. All I do know is that she she was a really lovely young lady, very innocent, but also quite clearly very troubled and perhaps repressing a lot of the traumatic things that had happened to her in life and kind of also the consequences of those being her mental health disorder. But I really do hope that wherever she is, that she is able to kind of move on and work through whatever it is that, that is causing this mental health disorder that she is suffering with. Um, what do what did I learn from her? Well, I I learned the shocking statistics around mental health and looked after children and children in foster care, and it really made me think very carefully about how we're all really responsible, I think, for ensuring that as a society we come out with better mental health generationally than the generation before us. And I don't know that that is the current trend at the moment. I know that suicide in females in an in america has gone up 400 percent in the last 10 years and so that indicates to me that actually things are getting much worse and so i think for those people within our society who are the most vulnerable which would be children who are removed from their families removed from their schools and their houses and their local environment and all the things which children regularly need such as routine and familiarity to feel safe and put into foster homes or into other you know care facilities even if it's another member of their extended family who is playing that role. You know, these people are hugely vulnerable to mental health disorders. And and actually the saddest and most kind of devastating thing about this whole situation is that there are children who have not yet been born. And we already know from those children that there is a chance, a 50% chance, basically, that that they could end up with a severe mental health disorder that could massively impact on the rest of their lives. And the, those children will be kind of, I suppose, the like we all are, the, the consequences of their environment. And sadly, that environment is probably founded on their parents and their parents' own poor mental health. And so I think part of the problem is that we don't really know how on earth to tackle the problem or where or when to tackle this problem. Because it's a cycle, isn't it, of mental health affecting mental health. Whether that's the, something that is learned from parents or something that is just not actively taught and therefore more likely to come out. And then obviously you factor in the idea of gene, you factor in the idea of uh, trauma and, you know, especially uh, insecure attachment in, in young children has been linked to people later on uh, developing depression, anxiety, suicidal thoughts and severe mental health disorders like schizophrenia. So it's a really complex issue and and sadly I wish that I had the solution but I don't. But I think it's something that even just by considering, especially if you are thinking of becoming a parent or you are a parent, thinking about how you actively... Broach subjects such as mental health with your children and how you teach them to deal with their emotions even and as a society if we all just try to take more care around ourselves and how we interact with ourselves as well as you know how we interact with others i think that will go a long way in terms of perhaps coming closer to finding some sort of solution for the really increasing levels of poor mental health in young people in regards to obviously the the further complications facing young people who are looked after children or are involved with social care it's unfortunately even more complex and difficult to discern exactly how to reach and support these young people and to prevent them from falling into that cycle of becoming mentally unwell I don't want to obviously it sounds bleak it really does And you're currently sat at home thinking, oh, my goodness, (laughs) I'm never having children or wow, Ellie, you really (laughs) you have really just made my day into some sort of swirling pit of despair i do apologize and that is not my intention but i think we should all take stock in the fact that you know i have a podcast where i can talk about mental health and people can listen and there are millions of other fantastic podcasts out there which do the same and there are so many more resources and and awareness surrounding mental health is increasing and the fact that i have people who listen every week to this podcast really tells me that actually our perspective on mental health is the the difference that that needs to be to be made which is that you know we're open to the idea of talking about it listening sharing and learning which i think are the most important thing in terms of what you can learn from sarah well i think one of the the things which i've mentioned which really shocked me and perhaps shocked you is obviously the use of electric therapy or ect to apparently fix her problem or heal her or I don't exactly know what the intention is which is you know I suppose the point but one thing I think you could probably learn from from her experience is that actually if you are sectioned in hospital and the doctor decides that electroconvulsive therapy is the treatment required for you in order to recover from your mental health disorder or recover enough to be able to be released back into the community and be under secondary services care or whatever. If you are sectioned, if you're entering hospital against your consent, the treatment that you are provided can be administered without your consent, and therefore ECT, or electroconvulsive therapy, can be administered without you having a say. And that means that people are literally being (laughs) forced into having their brains essentially shocked and if you look at the 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 side effects of of having ect it states very clearly that it causes a huge number of side effects as all i suppose medications do and you could argue well perhaps the positives outweigh the negatives but i think it's it's quite daunting to think that actually if you ever found yourself in a position where you were already extremely vulnerable because your mental capacity is diminished, you could find yourself facing electroconvulsive therapy for a course of 12 weeks, twice a week. I mean, that's to me quite shocking that that goes on. And I'm not saying that that's wrong that that, that, that goes on, because I don't think I really under fully understand how the treatment works. But for me, the thing which raises a question mark is the fact that if you do any research into ECT, you'll see that the doctors quite clearly are not sure exactly how ECT works. So it's, to me, quite a daunting and grey area, I would say. So I suppose what you can learn is that ECT is still a treatment on the NHS if you, if you weren't aware of that. And that actually, if you were sectioned, which you might be, whoever you are right now listening, you might well be thinking... That would never happen to me. I would never get sectioned. My mental health is fine. I've never had a problem. Perhaps you're right and perhaps you won't. And I really hope that you don't. I really do, because, you know, from personal experience, I can tell you that it was very challenging and and is for people who right now are in hospital against their will and who are suffering and struggling and dealing with things that they fully don't understand and are not in control of. But you could well be one of those people. You, you just don't know. You really don't know. And I think that's what, what makes life so frightening, but also so exciting, because we never know what's around the corner, do we? I mean, how can I possibly top that lovely optimistic note? I should probably stop before it gets negative again. So yeah, that's Sarah. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. I'm sorry if I depressed anyone. And just to cheer you up. I'm very pleased to announce the second coffee cup competition. Sorry, I'm singing. I said I wouldn't do that. So I do apologise. I'll stop. Anyway, in order to enter, all you have to do is to share your listenership of the latest episode or some memorabilia... whatever of the podcast and tag the podcast or myself in it so that I know that you are sharing it and you're automatically entered. It's as easy as that. Okay. And you can win a Starbucks gift card from me for absolutely free. Okay. I'm giving this away people. So share and share alike. Excellent. That's that out the way. Next week, we'll be talking uh, about Maura. I've called her Maura because uh, I mean, you'll find out why I've called her Mora, but I just feel like it really demonstrates her personality. So you can just use that as a little kind of indicator, a little appetizer into what you're you're getting into next week. Really look forward to speaking to you then.